0: On this, our very first episode of the Attention on Prevention podcast, we'll be talking with Amber Sorensen, a survivor of shaken baby syndrome who is currently pursuing her master's degree at Kent State University. We'll talk about what shaken baby syndrome actually is, the incredible story of how Amber discovered that she was a shaken baby syndrome survivor, and Amber's past and current research projects about shaken baby syndrome. So we invite you to take the time to listen and learn about how we can work together to keep our babies safe from harm. Let's focus our attention on prevention. Hello and welcome. I'm Ryan Steinbigel, Executive Director of the National Center on Shaken Baby Syndrome. I'm thrilled and excited to announce this new podcast series we're launching, where we'll be discussing a variety of child development, parenting, and child maltreatment topics. We wanted to launch this new webinar series because we wanted to be a reliable source for parents and for caregivers to come and learn about the many challenges that parents and caregivers face in caring for a new baby, and hopefully provide some insight about what parents can expect And of course, discuss ways that we can all work together to continue to prevent child abuse. This is our very first webinar and what we hope to be a long series of webinars, but we wanted to start by providing some insight into the form of child maltreatment that our organization specifically works to prevent, and that's um, shaken baby syndrome. So for our first podcast, I'm really fortunate today to have as our uh, first guest speaker, Amber Sorensen. Amber is a graduate student at Kent State University, major or working on communications, but Amber's also a survivor of shaken baby syndrome. Uh, Amber was shaken multiple times in 1998 between the ages of uh, four and five months, and actually just a few weeks ago, it was the 23rd anniversary uh, since Amber was shaken. And so welcome, Amber. I appreciate you taking the time to, to do this podcast with us.
1: Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me.
0: So I I would imagine that there's probably some people who might be listening that this they're not super familiar with with shaken baby syndrome, which was often also called abusive head trauma. So I thought I'd start with just maybe a brief explanation of what that is. So shaken baby syndrome is a form of child maltreatment that happens when a parent or caregiver violently and repetitively shakes a young child, usually less than one. And what happens when a, ch- uh, a baby is shaken is the head sort of moves back and forth, right? But really, in sort of like a whiplash type motion, and it's this acceleration and deceleration of the head that causes the brain inside the skull to bounce around. And as as the skull ba- or as the brain bounces around rather inside the skull. It causes the bridging veins and vessels inside the brain to break and bleed, producing what we, we call subdural hemorrhaging. And as this bleeding continues, it sort of initiates this whole cascade of chemical reactions that, amongst other things, causes swelling of the brain. And it's the, the brain swelling as it, it presses on the skull. This is what creates the most serious of injuries that we see in these cases of shaken baby syndrome not only do we see the, the bleeding in the brain and then the brain swelling, but we also often see bleeding in the eyes. So the veins and, and vessels inside the retina of the eye will break and tear and bleed, producing retinal hemorrhaging. And, and in a lot of cases of abuse, um, babies will have a blindness because of the bleeding inside the eyes. So there's a lot of injuries that, that happen as a result of the abuse. And you know, Amber, for you, 23 years ago, this was your reality. Can you tell us a little bit about what what happened to you? What your injuries were?
1: Yeah, for sure. I had a lot of the things happen to me that you've already mentioned. Um, from what I know of what happened, I had a skull fracture and a brain injury involving old and new blood, which basically indicated that the shaking, although I wasn't hospitalized till after the third incident, they thought that I had been shaken on multiple occasions, which is why there was old and new blood in the brain. And then I also had retinal hemorrhaging. And I had that kind of swelling in the brain that you mentioned earlier, which resulted in me having to get shunts placed, which I still have today. Um, Yeah, I was hospitalized for about two weeks, if not longer. I know for some of that time, I had a feeding tube placed because I was vomiting and wouldn't wouldn't take formula. So that's kind of the basics.
0: Yeah, sadly, I mean... There's a lot of statistics about, um, you know, what happens in these cases. And sadly, about 30% of infants who are, are violently shaken don't survive. And so, you know, fortunately, in your case, Amber, you're sort of one of the lucky ones. But, you know, in about 70 to 80% of cases, uh, there's ongoing physical, cognitive impairments that, you know, sometimes they'll spend a lifetime dealing with. Have you had any sort of residual effects as a result of, of the injuries that you suffered as a young infant?
1: I can't really attribute anything specifically to the abuse per se. I don't think. I do have epilepsy. They don't really know if that was because of the abuse. Obviously, some survivors, that is a consequence that they have to deal with. I wasn't actually diagnosed till much later in life. So I was about 20, 21, somewhere around there. I had had some episodes that doctors weren't really sure whether it was fainting or whether it was seizures but that's really the only health thing that I can point to that may have been caused by it
0: so you mentioned you didn't learn about this until later in your life so you didn't know as a young child that you were ever shaken this didn't this didn't become known to you until later
1: Yeah, I actually did not find out that I had been shaken until I was about 19 years old. After my first semester of undergrad at Luther College, I had found articles about the abuse that happened, old articles in newspapers on microfilm back when we went to libraries more and COVID wasn't so prevalent. Um, And that's kind of how I found out I wasn't really ever told by anybody.
0: Wow. That must've been shocking. You found out, you found articles about your own abuse and that was the first time you'd ever heard about it. Yep. Wow. What was that like for you to learn it, you know, such odd and probably difficult way, to be honest with you.
1: To be honest with you, I kind of just remember sitting there and reading it and I guess laws and such have changed since then, obviously, and that they had my name there, the abuser's name. But usually now, obviously, they don't list juveniles' names in papers. But it's right there, black and white, and I kind of remember sitting there and reading it and kind of being in shock, to be honest. Which is obviously what a lot of parents go through when they learn that their child was abused. Kind of just blanking out in that regard. Then I remember leaving the library that I was at, and I just started sobbing and breaking down because it was su- it was such a shock.
0: Yeah, I bet that was hugely traumatic to find out in, in that way, you know. And obviously, Amber, I don't want you to share anything that you don't feel comfortable sharing. But did the do you know anything about who was the one who actually committed the abuse against you?
1: I do know. About who committed the abuse against me. Um, It was a family member. They did serve some time in a correctional institute and some time on parole. Um, The exact time lengths, as far as those things went, are kind of unclear just based on how I found out.
0: So, after you found out, was this something that you shared with others or did you kind of keep it to yourself? Was there. What was that like for you?
1: It was during Christmas break of my first semester of college that I found out. So shortly after I found this out, I went back to college, obviously. I definitely took a time, not that much time, but I took a time that I kind of was working on processing it and kind of just seeing where my own head was at. Um, I did go to counseling at my college for about a good month or so right after I found out. But shortly after that was when I started talking about my own story. I think kind of as that cathartic way of coping, you might say.
0: So Amber, do you still have a relationship with the abuser at all or has that been...
1: I have a somewhat minimal relationship. Obviously, it's very complicated, given the circumstances. Yeah.
0: yeah. What do people say, or how do they react when they hear that, you know, you had such a traumatic form of abuse happen to you at such a young age? Are people shocked, or do they ask a lot of questions, or how, how do people usually react to that?
1: Some people do ask. I wouldn't say a lot, but some questions. A lot of times it is shock, especially I think if they're younger and more in my age demographic, early 20-somethings, just because they may have never heard about shaken baby syndrome. Um, They may be not oblivious, but more unknowing to that. I do think that if it's more of an older person in their 40s, 50s, that kind of thing, there is that element of shock there, but they may be able to work through it more and comprehend more of what it actually means.
0: Yeah. Are you ever surprised to learn that people don't know what shaken baby syndrome is or have never heard of it before?
1: Honestly, I am... But that I think that comes down to the fact that I'm just so immersed in it. And it's kind of this huge part of not only my personal identity, but now it's grown to a lot of my professional and academic identity, too. So I'm so in it that it kind of It kind of does shock me sometimes when people don't know that's a thing, but I think hospitals and organizations like those are getting better at educating new parents that it is a thing, that it can affect everybody, regardless of your socioeconomic status, your education, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. You know, it's always, it is somewhat surprising to me, even though I, you know, being in this field, how many people we interact with and come in contact with that either A aren't familiar with what shaken baby syndrome is, or B don't realize, you know, just how serious in terms of a form of abuse it really is. You know, for a form of abuse that is nearly almost as common as a sudden infant death syndrome, which, you know, we we talk about all the time, you hear about everywhere, you would think more people would. Recognize and have heard about it, and especially you know if you've ever had children, you can understand how difficult it can be to to care for a new baby, especially one that you know may cry inconsolably, and and how frustrating that is. So it's always just surprising to me that more people haven't heard. And I think you're right. I think we are hospitals and public health and and others are starting to do better in in recognizing that and educating parents about it. But it's still just so surprising to me that more people aren't just aware of of what it is and how it happens. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, obviously I know this is something you very much care about and, and have sort of tried to make it a priority, especially in terms of what you're doing with your graduate studies. I, I understand that you're doing some research related to to shaken baby syndrome. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're, what you're doing in your graduate program?
1: As far as my graduate program goes, I kind of started on this research trajectory that actually led to me being in graduate school around my junior, senior year of my undergraduate career. At that time, I was working more so with non-offending birth parents of survivors and getting their stories and their experiences as far as how their family communication as a whole changed after the abuse happened, because it's a very untapped area of research and communication in general. Um, I think... A lot of times it's more in the know with lawyers, doctors, people in those kinds of fields. Now in my graduate program, I'm working more so currently on the aspect of social support for non-offending birth parents um, and others, but that's kind of my area of emphasis.
0: Has there been anything sort of interesting or that you didn't expect that you've learned in talking to non-offending birth parents?
1: I think the biggest thing would just be, especially when I started this kind of work, because I do a lot of interviews, that's kind of the area that I find most interesting, just to get at the meat, for lack of a better word, of Mm. people's unique stories. But I think the most interesting thing that comes up repeatedly actually, is that parents want to share their stories and they want that information to be out there. And even though it may and often was very traumatic and might still be depending on when their child's injuries occurred, they often just don't really get that opportunity to share those stories and have a platform for that. Because as I said, a lot of the research and literature is more geared towards the medical and criminal justice type fields. Yeah.
0: Well, and it probably goes along with what we were just talking about too. I'm sure these parents who, these non-offending birth parents, you know, they, they want the stories to get out there so that they can prevent this from, from happening to someone else, somebody else's child.
1: For sure. For sure.
0: So, you know, obviously you, you've, overcome a lot. And I think it's so impressive, Amber, that, you know, you're doing your graduate work and working in communications and focusing on, you know, shaken baby syndrome. What are some of your long-term goals? What do you hope to, to do once you finish your, your master's program at Kent State?
1: I want to hopefully go on to pursue a PhD uh, location to be determined at this point. Yeah, I want to do that and hopefully become a college professor either at the undergraduate and or graduate level. Wow. <laughs> i think i had a lot of professors especially in my undergrad career i can't say too much for my graduate career thus far since it's so new relatively but definitely in my undergraduate career i had a lot of professors that definitely supported me not only personally as far as my story and wanting to share that with them but then also turning that into kind of a way to help others and share other people's stories and a a lot of them were definitely open to me doing that so they kind of supported me a lot personally and professionally academically with my goals
0: yeah that's um, absolutely amazing Amber I think it's so impressive that you're going to finish your master's and go into get a PhD and and that you want to teach I think that's that's terrific one thing that uh, I wanted to ask and I sort of came up when you mentioned talking to not offending parents, but obviously with with the National Center and the work that we do, the one, our biggest emphasis is trying to prevent this abuse from happening to others. What are some of the things that you feel like that parents need to know so that this abuse doesn't happen, so that we can stop this, so we can prevent this from happening to other children?
1: I think one of the biggest things, and I kind of alluded to it a bit earlier, but one of the biggest things that I try to point out with not only my prevention and advocacy efforts, but also my research, is that the fact that shaken baby syndrome doesn't discriminate and that it can happen to anybody I know a really common sentiment among many is that people didn't know it would affect them. They didn't really pay attention to child abuse in general, let alone such a severe form as shaken baby syndrome. And then all of a sudden their child's affected oftentimes for life. They may have a lot of health difficulties and developmental issues. And they may come from a higher upper middle class background. They may be educated. It's just... It just really comes down to who you decide to leave your child in the care of and oftentimes a split second decision that can impact the course of the child's life.
0: You know, Amber, you're absolutely right. You know, we hear all the time talking to people that, you know, people think that it's. Just certain individuals, people who you know, inherently have tendencies to become frustrated or exhibit bad behaviors are the ones who, who would shake a baby. But that's just not the case, you know and the, and the research shows that that we see abuse in, in all walks of life, in all demographics, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. And the thing that I think people don't realize until they, you know, have a child, especially one that's a high crier, is just how hard that can be and how frustrating that can be. And it just takes a split second to just lose your patience and react. And, and you don't realize that that reaction can have lifelong devastating consequences for kids. And it's, it's really just heartbreaking, but it's, it's part of the reason that education uh, and prevention are so important because if parents understand that and realize that and then have some action steps in terms of what they can do when they get frustrated, hopefully we can prevent, you know, the, you know, the abuse from ever happening.
1: For sure. Yeah.
0: Now, Amber, you're, you're such an inspiration. I, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with us. Is there anything else that you would want our listeners to know either about your experience or about shaken baby syndrome or the work you're doing in your graduate program?
1: I think one of the biggest things that I hope people can take away is that I know with a lot of survivors, it may be apparent that they may be facing some physical or developmental issues, but with a lot of the more high-functioning ones, such as myself, it's kind of one of those things that's more of an invisible condition. Not to say that I luckily did not suffer that many lifelong issues after the abuse. But I think a lot of times people are quick to judge when they don't really know the full story behind a situation, whether that be the survivor themselves or the parents and the families. And I think I would just say to kind of try to be more empathetic towards those whose situations that you don't necessarily know or can't necessarily tell from just looking at them.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's what I was going to say, too, is the empathy part is, you know, there there are such a wide ranging level of, of injuries that that children who survive can have. And and like you said, in some cases, it's much more obvious. You know, people, some kids will have a, a G-tube or be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of their lives. And others just have slight, just little ongoing issues that wouldn't be so obvious unless you knew that, you know, they had these injuries happen to them as, as a young child. And so you're absolutely right, Amber, having Empathy and being understanding about those things and what you know you've gone through, what you went through as a baby that you had no control um, over—that somebody did this to you—it's not a result of anything you did. So, I think that's an important important point for our listeners to hear about. So, uh, Amber, again, thank you so much for taking the time to to be with us. Like I said, you're an inspiration, and I'm thrilled to hear of of all the wonderful things that you're doing. And best of luck, and as you continue in your graduate and and onto your PhD.
1: Thank you so much.